This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, I'm Carol Walker sitting in for Matt Chorley and this is the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. Matt will be back on Monday, but today we're going to bring you my fascinating interview with Dr Liam Fox, former International Trade Secretary, a former Defence Secretary and someone with a lot of connections across the Atlantic. So, of course, we started by talking about the extraordinary standoff after the American presidential election. Well, of course, the American system is different from ours. We tend to waken up the next morning with a, a, a full result and a, and a new government uh, ready to be put into action. That's not the case in the US. Of course, it's a state by state election right up to the, uh, the meeting of the Electoral College on December the 14th. So I think there are good things about this election. The first is that the turnout is the high since 1900. It's great to see in what the world's most powerful democracy, people taking a genuine interest uh, in the outcome of the election. And of course, it's US voters who will ultimately determine the election result. Uh, and the courts, if necessary, will determine if the votes, the votes were cast legally. It is not up for politicians to determine uh, what the outcome is before the votes have been counted. So I think that what we're seeing in the US, you, you may get a change in the presidency. It will be by a very small margin, it looks like. Um, but you'll get no change in Congress, that Democrats will still control the House of Representatives and the Republicans will still control the Senate. And it really means that whoever is the president will be very constrained um, by the, uh, the American Constitution and the makeup of Congress, which I think we tend to forget a lot in our conversations in the UK about American politics because we tend to focus on the presidency. Uh, we've heard Joe Biden talking about how he's going to try and unite the country. But this period of delay and uncertainty does look set to just accentuate those deep divisions that we keep hearing right across the United States. Well, it's 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 because there is a real division. Um, and uh, Donald Trump has won about four million votes than he did last time. Uh, Joe Biden looks like he may have won more votes than any candidate for presidency before. There is a big division uh, in the United States um, and it will take time to work through the system. So I think that, A, we shouldn't be too uh, anxious uh, about this. And B, I certainly don't think we should be pontificating uh, to the United States about how to run their own system. Two things I would say is it's very important not to undermine faith in the democracy itself. 
uh, because the uh, result may not be the one that you want. And also, there is absolutely never any excuse for violence just because you don't like the result or how the process is being conducted. And I think it's necessary, therefore, um, that uh, the calls for patience that are being made by uh, a number of politicians uh, are listened to. Ultimately, if there is a dispute, the Americans have a very robust legal system that will enable uh, any, any dispute between the parties to be resolved. It does seem as though the pollsters and just about everyone else have once again underestimated Donald Trump. Well, the pollsters have got it wrong. I'm not sure that it's just that they underestimated Donald Trump, but there's clearly something wrong with the pollsters in that there is a substantial section of public opinion. Uh, we had it here with Brexit. We had it here uh, in the general election. Uh, we have seen it again in the United States that there's a substantial proportion, a type of non-metropolitan voter that the pollsters don't seem to be able to pick up upon. And, uh, you know, if, I have to say the one thing that I think you can say for certain uh, from this election is that if I were holding shares in a polling company, uh, I'd have them sold this morning. Yeah, indeed. And we keep being told that the pollsters have learned the lessons. But uh, once again, they definitely underestimated Donald Trump. But it does look, when you look at the landscape, uh, the votes that are still to come in, as though the most likely scenario is going to be a President Joe Biden. What do you think that will mean for relations with the UK? I don't think it means a, a huge amount of difference because you mentioned, Carol, the term special relationship. That was first used by Winston Churchill uh, when he gave that speech in Fulton, Missouri, that is actually better remembered for his use of the term Iron Curtain. And the, uh, at that time, the special relationship to him meant uh, a defense and security relationship. And that's still what it does mean. I know that over periods, particularly in the Thatcher-Reagan era, it sort of gained a kind of um, Disney-esque hue to it. Uh, but that's never really been the basis of it. It's the fact that the intelligence sharing between the United Kingdom and, and the US is the closest in the world. It is not replicated in any other case. Um, and uh, of course, we are the two biggest contributors to NATO. So uh, our defense and security outlook is very similar. Uh, and that is, that's the basis for it. There are all sorts of differences from time to time between US governments and UK governments uh, on different aspects of foreign policy or what they're doing in terms of economic policy. But the common factor is that sharing of the defense and security outlook. And I don't see that changing. And in the wider political relationship, as I said earlier, um, you've got a Republican controlled Senate. Therefore, there will be a great limitation on anything that a President Biden would be able to do in terms of legislation. He could certainly reverse some of the uh, executive orders made by President Trump. But the American system is designed to provide checks and balances. And you could argue, I suppose, that at a time when there has been such a split in the electorate over the presidency, that the American uh, political system with the balance between the House of Representatives and the Senate has actually provided the stability that the founding fathers intended. Nonetheless, these bilateral relationships do have they are hugely affected by the personalities of the leaders involved. I mean, if we think back to, to Thatcher and Reagan, um, Blair and Bush and so on, and we know that there has been a rapport, at least, between Boris Johnson and Donald Trump, whereas Joe Biden 
we are told, was not at all impressed with Boris Johnson's remarks when he was still mayor of London, when he talked about Barack Obama's uh, Kenyan ancestry. Um, we know that Joe Biden has, for example, been very forthright about the prospects of, uh, if we leave the EU without a trade deal, what that's going to mean for the Northern Ireland border. I mean, the signals that we're getting are, are not particularly promising on that. I mean, Boris Johnson's got a bit of ground to make up, hasn't he? Well, of course, there is. The, uh, I'm afraid that the, uh, the UK um, liberal media or elements of it are always keen to try to drive wedges between democratic administrations and UK Conservative governments. It's nothing new there. But of course, his history is littered with examples of where there were differences of opinion. Harold Wilson, of course, wouldn't support the American government over Vietnam. John Major famously had a bit of a fallout with Bill Clinton. But ultimately, the relationship is built on a solid security uh, relationship. That's, that is, as I said, the foundation for the special relationship itself. And that relationship is far too valuable to uh, be owned by any party in the UK, either Labour or Conservative, or in the United States, Democrat or Republican, or indeed by any individual uh, personal chemistry. Uh, we, we need that relationship because it has a bilateral and global importance, and we have to always ensure that any differences that we do have uh, are dealt with in, 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 in political ways, but we don't allow them to to interfere with that much more important um, global security relationship. But Biden seems to have made it very clear that his priority is going to be rebuilding links with, with France and Germany and, and the EU. And I remember um, uh, George Bush, uh, first George Bush, saying that the mo America's most important uh, partner uh, in Europe would be Germany. Um, of course, uh, when it became very clear that the Germans were un underfunding their commitment to NATO, that soon changed and the UK was uh, again the, the main security partner. It's, it's natural that the United States would want to build its relationships with the European Union. They haven't been very good because uh, the United States and, and Europe have been unable to come to any agreements uh, over trade and uh, the, the US and not just the Republicans but many Democrats in Congress are very sceptical. What about the prospects of a trade deal? Um, Donald Trump has been talking very positive about the prospects of a US-UK trade deal. Um, but of course, there are huge practical obstacles to all of that. Um, what about Joe Biden? Would we be able to get a decent trade deal with the United States? Well, again, I would urge that people don't uh, attach too much sentiment to these things. Trade deals are agreed when they are of mutual benefit to both sides. Countries don't agree trade agreements that are to their disadvantage. The U.S. will negotiate very hard in a trade agreement. They are the world's biggest economy, uh, after all, um, and they have very strong uh, political interests. Uh, we will reach an agreement if an agreement uh, is to the benefit of both sides, and that would be true whatever uh, administration was in place. But there are, there, are, there are two other elements I think we need to understand about this, that trade is not just about the presidency. Actually, the authority for trade agreements lies in Congress. And the uh, one thing that is coming up is uh, the authority for the president to negotiate trade agreements, which has to be renewed by Congress, has to be renewed um, by the end of July this year. So Congress tends to have a slightly stronger hand in these things at the moment than they would normally have. And so some of those sectional interests, whether they're agricultural or industrial, uh, are likely to be more powerful uh, at the moment than perhaps at other points 
in the cycle. So you've got the availability of the deal. The second is the scope of the deal. And the American administration doesn't have the same authority to negotiate on trade as, for example, the UK government would be. We could negotiate on trade uh, in goods and services, but the authority to, uh, to make agreements on services lies very often at the state's department state level rather than the federal level in the United States. So for the UK to get the sort of trade agreement that it wants to get, it would have two routes. One is to get the US government to corral all 50 states in the areas that uh, we wanted to talk about services or to take a parallel uh, negotiation to talk to the federal government about uh, manufactured goods and agriculture and so on, but to talk at the state level um, on uh, on issues around services, whether they're legal, life sciences, and so on. Okay. So th- that's quite a big decision uh, to take uh, on both sides. Um, but I think it's something that does need to be explored. And I think that when we talk about a trade deal with the United States, we're talking about a trade deal in limited areas of trade more than it might be in in other circumstances. Uh, Let's look at the picture closer to home because, of course, there was a vote in the Commons yesterday approving the legislation. England has gone into the second lockdown. I I know that you voted in favour of the restrictions, but, I mean, an awful lot of your colleagues on the Conservative benches um, expressed some really strong reservations, including um, Theresa May, who seems to be emerging as a new rebel, who said that Boris Johnson's choosing the data to fit his policies. Well, one of the, one of the issues that all of us feel very strongly about is this issue of data. And I'm afraid that for most of us, the government saying it is following the science is no longer good enough for us. We want to see that data. In fact, I want to go further. I have been suggesting that we set up a commission across parties and across both houses of parliament uh, of senior members that are able to see all the data that the government uh, is able to see. And that's not just health data. Uh, I want to be able to see the data on, on the wider NHS and not just COVID. I want to see the data on the uh, economy, on, on jobs and on trade uh, of a lockdown. I want to see the impact that we have to be able to measure on social fabric uh, and what is happening to that. We have to be able hand on heart to say that the cure is not worse than the disease in terms of the wider impact on the economy. And I think that the time when the government could get uh, through the House of Commons by saying we're following the science is now behind us. So do you share those concerns of Theresa May who said that she thinks Boris Johnson is choosing the data to fit the policies? Well, the problem, the problem even with that assertion is that unless you see all the data, you can't know which data is being used in what way. Uh, and that seems to me the basic issue. How can we hold the government to account? How can we carry out our role of scrutiny as a parliament unless we have wider access to all the data that the government, uh, upon which the government's making its decisions, not just on health, but on the economy and, and other wider areas? We, need, we haven't got a specific committee in the House of Commons that enables us to do that. And I think that we, we should give greater confidence to the British public by ensuring that Parliament has that new scrutiny power. Uh, and I, that's what I'm urging the House uh, to go ahead and set up. What about the principle in all of this, though? I mean, of course, Boris Johnson has made it clear that he, he, the last thing he wanted to do was to lock down uh, so many businesses, so many of our 
freedoms as he's had to do again. Um, Charles Walker, who's a very senior Conservative MP, said uh, yesterday that the government has criminalised freedom of association, freedom about to go about one's business, freedom to travel, freedom to protest. The freedom protest is the oxygen of democracy. It hurts my head and hurts my heart, he said. I mean, do you not share those concerns about a Conservative government imposing so many rules, so many regulations on what you can do, which members of your family you can meet and so on? Of course I do, but it's a pandemic. We don't have the freedom to go out and infect uh, other members of the public out of some misplaced sense of, of personal liberty. Uh, we have, as part of our, uh, our freedom in our country, a responsibility uh, to exercise it uh, in a reasonable way. And, and this, is, this is, I think, the crux of the question. Um, it is uh, the lockdown, with all those restrictions on our freedom, justified and proportionate, given the size of the risk that we face? Or is it disproportionate? If we were to have no restrictions at all, what would that mean in terms of the risk to the public, in terms of mortality of those, those most vulnerable, of what it might mean for clogging up the health services for cancer patients and other patients? We need to look at, look at it in the round. Uh, and there is no point hysterically coming down on one side or another. We've got to have a balanced and reasonable view, but we can only do that if we are able to see uh, all the information in front of us. As a, as a doctor, I was trained to make decisions on the basis of the evidence, and that should be what we do in politics as well. The same ethics that apply to those rules in medicine should be applying to politics, and I don't think that we do have, as uh, a parliament, the information that we, that we need to give that dutiful scrutiny uh, in a way that can reassure the public that any restrictions on their liberty are taken only uh, for the shortest periods and only in the ways utterly necessary to so protect as, public health. So as a doctor, is there, are there things that you would have done differently? I mean, it has been quite a mess, hasn't it? We have lurched from one strategy to another. We've had uh, Boris Johnson denouncing the leader of the opposition, Zakir Starmer, for proposing uh, a, a briefer a circuit breaker lockdown only to introduce a longer one a few uh, weeks later. We've had uh, leaks of the lockdown coming out before the final decisions and the final announcements have been made. I mean, it's been a bit of a mess, hasn't it? Well, in a, in a sense, we're not any different from most other uh, developed countries. Um, Germany's gone back into another lockdown after saying they wouldn't. France is in exactly the same position. Belgium's got an even stricter lockdown. Uh, the, 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 the bottom line is that governments have to tread this line between keeping the economy vibrant enough to pay for the public services on which we depend, but at the same time not giving greater risk to public health than otherwise necessary. No one's found the right balance on that yet. And if you're the Prime Minister, and let's have some sympathy for, for, for any Prime Minister in this position, if your medical advisors come to you and say, unless you have a lockdown, thousands of people in this country will die, and that will be your fault. Now, that's quite a big decision to take. What I want is to have a commission set up in the House of Commons that can, that can give alternative or at least reinforcing advice to the Prime Minister and the government by, able, by being able to scrutinise not just the health information but all that economic data as well uh, to give that, that reassurance. We haven't in any country, I don't think, in the West got the balance uh, exactly right at the present time. As we get the potential for a vaccine, as we understand better the uh, immunology uh, behind 
uh, resistance and spread in the population, then uh, our basis for making decisions may get better. But we have to ensure that the data is as available to as many people as possible who would be involved in making those decisions because I know that a number of my colleagues rebelled last night uh, but it's nothing to the number that would rebel were we to be asked to have a third lockdown without us being able to see all the information all the data upon which such a decision would be made. But as a doctor are you not concerned about the effect that this second lockdown is going to have on all those people with other serious health conditions, the people who are not going to be getting the treatment that they might normally have expected to receive for for cancer, for heart disease, for all kinds of other medical problems? Yeah, yes, I am. But I'm even more concerned about what would happen to our health service if we had uh, another mass uh, uh, need for hospitalizations for COVID patients, uh, which would certainly ensure that we were unable to provide those services. Uh, I'm afraid that this is a situation, much as we would wish otherwise, where policymakers are faced with options rather than solutions. Uh, The solutions may come later, but they're not there at the moment. And all we have are a range of uh, unpleasant and unpopular options in front of us. So we've got to make sure we maintain that balance between being able to keep uh, normal health services moving um, and providing Uh, the care we need for COVID patients. If we have too many COVID patients, that means less uh, service for those uh, other patients. But if we have too long a lockdown, that also means uh, restrictions on those other patients. So we have to have, uh, it's a balance and it's a very difficult balance uh, to achieve and no one's produced a formula that gives us the perfect way forward. Um, Just very briefly, uh, what about the prospects of a deal with the EU? Uh, We are fast running out of time to get a deal before the current uh, handover period comes to an end at the end of the year. When it comes down to it, are we going to get a deal with the EU? Well, I'd say three things. First of all, uh, I think that we, we should do everything we can to get a deal. Uh, I think that's in the interests of both country, both uh, parties. And even if we were not to get one now, we'd have to start to get one for the future. So we need a deal uh, between um, the European Union, the world's biggest trading union, uh, and the UK. At, at some point, we might as well get it now. Uh, secondly, uh, however, we know that trade deals tend to go to the wire. Certainly the EU's record is that it goes to the wire uh, on any of its, tr- its trade agreements. We've seen that time and time again. But I think there's another element, Carol, And that is that up till now, this has been about the UK and the EU, what's good for us. I think in the current um, COVID global environment, uh, we've seen global trade shrink quite a lot. Uh, So far, we we see the global economy and GDP coming down and trade with it. We actually have an opportunity here to give some confidence to that wider uh, wider global trading environment by getting a UK-EU agreement. And I think it's now more important than just what's good for us. It is actually what's good for the, the world in which we, we find ourselves. And that's a great opportunity, which okay. we shouldn't miss. Uh, Liam Fox, uh, former International Trade Secretary, thank you very much indeed. Perhaps you're listening to this and thinking, oh, I'd like a bit more of that. Well, who can blame you? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. If you still need a bit more convincing, not to worry, there's more Times Red Box podcast on the way. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Andy Sylvester, Deputy Editor of City AM. Andy, good morning to you. Morning, I'm here. Excellent. Good to have you with us. Um, Of course, uh, the big story, the votes still being counted in the US election. Uh, Joe Biden saying that he's very confident that he will emerge as the winner. Uh, But Donald Trump launching legal action in several states, claiming there's been a fraud. Um, Andy, I mean, what do you make of what's going on? (laughs) I mean, 2020 has felt like you're living through a movie um, relatively often, it has to be said. Um, But I don't think anything in Hollywood would have uh, would have prepared us for the sight of a president standing up after a democratic election, quite clearly realising that mail in votes were going the wrong way and essentially saying it's a fraud. Um, The speed with which the president moved from Uh, demanding that votes uh, stopped counting in Pennsylvania um, and the speed with which they realised that actually they could do with quite a few more of them being counted in Arizona was was striking. Look, I think it it seems quite obvious to many, you know, analysts of American politics who have far more experience of these numbers in these different counties than I do, um, that Joe Biden is is on a path to victory. The question is, I suppose, how quickly America can heal itself from you know, partisan divides, which have already racked the country um, in the form of you know, violence and, and various other things this year, um, that will only be exacerbated by this sort of slightly bizarre transition of power. Indeed, and I think we are now joined by the Times columnist Robert Crampton. Hello, Robert, are you with us? Hello, Hello Carol, I'm here, yeah. I mean, Andy was making that point. It has been a hugely divisive election campaign Um, and that is going to be a huge problem isn't it and that's going to be exacerbated the longer this uncertainty goes on I think it is I mean it's been been going on not just for Trump's presidency although he's obviously made it worse it's been going on really since when we first saw this in 2000 what what a a brutally divided country America had become the the, the Bush-Gore election and it's been like that for 20 years, really, and it's and it hasn't got any better, has it? Uh, they're just two kind of different tribes who who. I mean, we thought we had it bad with Brexit in this country, but we're all sort of managing to put that behind us, I think. Uh, whereas there, uh, they're not. I mean, it's 20 years, and yeah, the longer this goes on, I mean, Trump's already trying to undermine. Biden's probably going to win, but Trump's already undermining his legitimacy. Uh, they have Democrats haven't got control of the Senate, so that's going to be a stalemate. And uh, it's hard to see what Biden's going to be able to do. Although uh, he made a good speech, I thought. Uh, I haven't been that impressed with Biden, but I thought when uh, the speech that he made at some point in the middle of the night, I can't quite remember because I'm quite tired, but uh, he 
he was good in terms of you know healing healing the healing the divides and so on. And kind of, I mean, it was it was it was great to hear that because we just have had none of that. We've had a president who, uh, or they've had a president who's who's done the opposite. I've, I've really felt for the columnists trying to write their pieces for this morning's papers because... Yeah, the timing's not good, isn't it? <laughs> they all had to try and write their pieces without knowing what is actually going to be happening by the time the uh, the paper lands on, on people's doorsteps. Um, but um, interesting, Andy, uh, Gerard Baker talking about who some of the winners and losers are. And, and, the, and the, amongst the losers, once again, the pollsters, because uh, even though it looks as though Biden may well in the end uh, emerge as the winner, Donald Trump has defied all the expectations. Yet again, as you say, the polls have been shown to be to be off, which is a polite way of, of saying completely and utterly wrong. Um I heard, you know, some American pollsters yesterday almost going through the same kind of moment of realisation that many in the UK did in 2016 and 2017, that their models and the way that you poll in the modern age, calling landlines, online um, surveys, it's just an extremely difficult job, especially, I think, exacerbated by those partisan divides we talked about earlier when actually declaring your politics can sometimes be almost contentious. Um, so I think it will be interesting to see what the pollsters do in the US to kind of make them make these a better model going forward. But to be honest, I think it's going to be even tougher for them because even if Biden does win, as expected, even if the le- legal lawsuits um, disappear and are thrown out of court, as I think most legal experts expect, you know, what does Donald Trump do next? Does he mm. form a sort of third wing of American politics that's further to the right of a Republican Party, which maybe drifts back towards the establishment you know it's a sort of there there are sort of strange parallels here with what happened after jeremy corbyn ceased to be leader of the labor party you say does it does it be kind of sort of splinter group or do the republicans move back as labor did um to a sort of more centrist establishment figure absolutely and of course one of the key things that the pollsters seem to have got wrong again is to underestimate Donald Trump. I mean, Danny Finkelstein in his column in the Times is saying, um, talking about Trump's pretty robust electoral performance, it means you can say crass things, be obviously boastful, behave in an erratic fashion, be completely undignified, lose members of staff all the time, insult them as they leave, tweet eccentric rants using capital letters, get impeached, and still, well, come within a whisper, and and who knows, we still haven't got a final result. Uh, Robert? And, and, and well, and also preside over, what is it now, nearly a quarter of a million American deaths from uh, coronavirus. Uh, but it didn't seem, that didn't seem to that didn't seem to matter any more than anything else. I mean, obviously, the economy the economy is a big factor. Americans feel most Americans feel better off than they did four years ago, despite the the uh, the pandemic and the uh, the, the, uh, the shutdowns. Uh, I think it, I mean it is yes it's amazing we look at Donald Trump and we think how could anyone vote for him basically uh but millions do and they can't all be they're not all ignorant racists uh millions of intelligent Americans on Tuesday voted for Donald Trump and that is something that we've all kind of got to get our heads around and the pollsters have got to get their heads around uh and I think I mean the other point about I mean, Trump could run again Trump could run again in four years' time. Hmm. Uh, if I mean, his party will let him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but would anybody be surprised if he did? 
or wanted to. I mean, I wouldn't. Uh, I think he's going to spend four years undermining Joe Biden and then he's going to go for it again. Um, I think certainly uh, predicting Donald Trump's next move um, yeah. has always been um, a, <laughs> a pretty challenging task. Um, let's just turn our attention closer to home because, um, of course, if we hadn't had this extraordinary drama being played out across the Atlantic, um, the big news would have been that England is now into its second lockdown, um, despite a lot of Conservatives objecting, saying they don't support the tighter restrictions, which will see non-essential shops, gyms and restaurants shut again. Uh, 34 Conservative MPs voted against the legislation last night. Um, and the former Prime Minister, Theresa May, who abstained, attacked the government's handling of the data around COVID-19. For many people, it looks as if the figures are used to, uh, chosen to support the policy rather than the policy being based on the figures. Um, Andy, uh, just one part of some pretty forthright criticism from Theresa May. Yes, again, I said 2020 had, uh, had been a little weird. Um, having Theresa May as defender of liberty is, is perhaps the weirdest <laughs> twist of the mark, considering what she was like in the Home Office. But um, yeah, it certainly it certainly seems that the government's big test um, and and sort of the political test is now: can they persuade? Um, the party, their own party, that this was a necessary move and vitally that it only lasts four weeks because it seemed to me that yesterday was a, a sort of initial run of the, the, the lockdown ultras, the anti-lockdown ultras, I suppose. But there's clearly that thinking across the party that they are getting in their constituencies an awful lot of feedback from people saying, hang on, why are we doing this again? The numbers didn't make any sense. Please stop throwing graphs at me. It doesn't seem that bad. Uh, I've lost my job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they're having to deal with that on a daily basis from their constituents. And that is going to have to feed into what they say to government, which, by the nature of being completely um, in this sort of trench for going on seven, eight months now, um, have been hunkered down in Downing Street and they're not hearing that. So I think it's it's an example, frankly, of a functioning political party feeding back from constituency offices to Downing Street. Why not talk about the poll claiming 72% support for this lockdown? And I mean, that that is quite a feature, isn't it, Robert? It is, although I think it does feel... It feels... I'm sceptical about that. It does feel very different from last time, doesn't it? I mean, last time we had the whole plot for carers and we had the idea that the government knew what it was doing and that it would be a finite amount of time. This time it feels that uh, people don't think the government knows what it's doing. Uh, they don't see any end in sight. Uh, and the national unity that we saw in March and April is, is splitting. Uh, and people are making, in my experience, people are starting to make their own risk assessments. I don't think people are being uh, uh, non-compliant necessarily, but they're, they're looking to see how they can bend the rules. I mean, and, and I can sort of understand that. Uh, I, I mean, where I live in East London, the, the figures have been going down for two weeks. Uh, the, there's a sense that maybe they should have toughed it out a bit longer with the local restrictions, and they were kind of panicked by the by the by the. Uh, what we're calling the dodgy data uh, into into this blanket measure, uh, and it it is hard to explain to people in areas where it's very very low, uh, or where it's been or where it's actually dropping. Uh, 
why they have to make this, this another sacrifice. Indeed, and we, we are getting increasingly stories of people who are finding ingenious ways of uh, finding little loopholes that they can get around um, just before the, the lockdown started when you could still meet just a limited number of people. Um, we had a guy, a businessman, who'd formed a limited company for his own family so that he could meet them all together at the same time. And I mean, Andy, that, that is a very different, difficult, a very different attitude to the one we had back in March, April. Yeah, I think it is. And I I think Robert's right. And, and your example points to it that we have such access to data in our, our own way. We can go on various websites. We can look in the papers. We can look at the numbers ourselves and make decisions ourselves. Whereas at the start of this, you really had to go on trust when, you know, Witty and Valance stood there and were very somber and serious and it was sort of a weird return of uh, of britain to being in, in complete hock to the experts post 2016 but i think people have started to view themselves as as experts because you know frankly during the summer even in sort of the mini liberalization of society again um you know there was more and more data around and people started to ask questions about the sacrifice they were making and i think this time around because we all remember how tough it was in march april may um the stress on mental health and the joy that has come with you know going back to the office seeing people in the pub going to restaurants having dinner at people's houses and we've remembered that again and so to have it taken away and not to be properly explained in my view, why it's absolutely necessary and why the restrictions that even, you know, a week ago Boris was saying were, were manna from heaven and we were doing it better than anybody else, why it's necessary to lock ourselves all up again for four weeks. Yeah, and some of the uh, language in the Commons yesterday was, was pretty apocalyptic, wasn't it, uh, Robert? People talking about it being like the East German Stasi and really... Yeah, there, there, there was a Tory, uh, the Tory guy, I can't remember his name, who was talking about the, the liberties being more dear to him than his own family. Uh, I think that might that's a bit hyperbolic, but uh, yes, I think. And the the the, the, the salient point is what well, the one that Andy just made is that people are they're much better informed themselves now, and they're making individual uh, they're making individual judgments, and it's going to be hard to uh, to sustain this. Uh, I mean, for four weeks, and certainly beyond four weeks. I and mean, obviously, they're trying to they're trying to uh, save not so much Christmas, but save the Christmas spending period. Uh, I'm not sure that we're not going to see a great deal of difference in four weeks. It might be, it might be uh, difficult for them to say in four weeks' time, oh, we can go back to what we were doing. And, and we, we are waiting to hear from Rishi Sunak um, making a statement in the Commons setting out uh, economic support. I mean, he is splurging phenomenal sums of mm. money, Andy. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the country is splurging <laughs> wild amounts of money. Put it this way, we're in the city, I'm, I'm around the corner from the Bank of England, and it, it's fair to say it would have previously been pretty seismic news if the Bank of England had decided to pump 150 billion quid into the economy, essentially, by, by printing it. But to be honest, it's currently sitting second on our website because there's too much going on. Um, so, you know, we are just dealing with sums, figures and sums that we have no... 
frame of reference for? I mean, this is way beyond whatever happened in 2008, 2009, 2010 in the global financial crisis. And the effects of this are going to be much more long lasting. And that when people say life is going to be back to normal in 2021 or 2022 and we get a vaccine and we can all go back down the pub. Yeah, it's going to feel great. But we're going to be living with the economic hangover of this in terms of, frankly, inevitably increased taxation um, for a very long time. Uh, a very quick thought from you on that, Robert. Yeah, I think we only stopped uh, paying off our debt from the Second World War in about 1990, the 1990s, I think. And this is going to be like that. It's going to be like that. This is going to be, a, you know, 50 years of debt. Robert Crampton, uh, Times columnist, uh, Andy Sylvester, deputy editor of City AM. Uh, thank you both so much. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo jumbo charts. Listen to my Times radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription. To get that, go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.